First, though, we are starting with a story about crime in Vancouver. As you've likely heard on the news, Vancouver police saying now in the city of Vancouver, there is an average of four stranger assaults per day. And that has a lot of people on edge. This is something we're seeing all too often. We've heard loud and clear from residents who tell us that they're, they don't feel as safe as they used to be. We're concerned. Uh, we're taking significant steps to uh, address those concerns. That was Vancouver Police Sergeant Steve Addison speaking about the number of assaults. Joining us now is Rick Parent. Rick is a former Delta police officer, also an, also an associate professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon, Jill. Yeah. What are your thoughts or your reaction when you hear that, when you hear about the reports and the increase of of crimes of stranger assaults? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I was talking to uh, Doug Todd about this when he did his uh, investigative journalism on this this topic is people have become more depersonalized, especially in the big cities. And I mean, you can simplify it when you're walking around down the street. Uh, you know, in the old in the past, we would typically look at each other, give each other eye contact hopefully a smile, and uh, hi, how's it going? And over the, the years, that's gone. We've lost that. And the pandemic only made it worse. Now we're wearing masks. Uh, some people are wearing hoodies. You've got sunglasses. I mean, you can barely even see the person. It's just somebody coming towards you. And a lot of people, again, don't do that greet, that meet and greet, that smile. And I think that's a huge thing. And that's, that kind of ties into this. Uh, that makes sense. But then it also, it seems like such a jump to, to talk about stranger assaults and not that, that, it, that it makes it worse, but it wasn't, I don't think, just a given, say, five years ago or 10 years ago that if you were walking downtown, you had to be fearful that you were going to be jumped or stabbed in the face by a complete stranger. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's this depersonalization that's occurred over time. And again, the pandemic's really made this worse, intensified everything. The other thing that's going on there, you have people that are angry. You've got a lot of angry people, whether it's truck drivers, just the average person. And you've created uh, a target-rich environment for those individuals that either want to engage in bad behavior or they're just bad people. Um, So it's a combination of things that I think have come together over the last probably two years specifically. And um, I think we all have a bit of a a share in in trying to help it. It's not just the police. We all need to do this sort of meet and greet and look people in the eye and be aware of our surroundings more than ever before because we've we've lost that as well. We we put on headphones. We don't uh, look around. We kind of stay in our own world with our smartphone. And that's another thing we have to change too. Uh, so even taking a small step, or, or maybe it's not such a small step, of not walking with your head down, staring at the phone, and kind of tuned out from the world around you? Yeah, right on. I think that's something. I, I, mean, I, th- I think you should engage people more uh, than we do. I think that's a, a big weakness in society in general. But certainly be uh, safety conscious. Be aware of your environment. When you go to a coffee shop, you go to uh, Tim Hortons, look around, see who's sitting there. Um, who might be a problem person and who might not be, and be aware of, of those individuals. And if you've ever seen cops, what cops do is they go into a restaurant or a coffee shop and they always keep their back to the wall and they're always watching everybody. Um, that's a little tip in itself, right? 
Right. But we also don't want to have to live that way, do we? In that, uh, I mean, you mentioned the Tim Hortons. That's where one of these attacks took place. It was a guy, he was just waiting for his coffee at 630 in the morning and he got stabbed. Somebody walked up and stabbed him. I mean, do, do we want to live in a world where to go get a coffee, you have to keep your back to the wall to make sure that doesn't happen to you? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think a lot of this, we're going to have to make these small changes. And I, I think the other thing that's happening here that's positive is that the police are out there trying to round up these people, trying to uh, get them before the courts. We're also talking about this now on your show, which is a great thing. Again, this is something we probably should have talked about six months ago. And then the third thing that, that happened, if you look at Winnipeg, uh, they had a problem with their liquor stores. They had a lot of violence going on in their liquor stores. And, and that's kind of the worst scenario, what happened there, is where they now, uh, you, you have to show your ID, and you're basically not allowed into the store until you show your face, your ID, and then they let you into a locked liquor store. So, I mean, that could happen here if we don't get a handle on this. How much of it do you think as well is the increase in the need for mental health services and treatment in that if somebody walks up to a complete stranger in a coffee shop lineup and starts stabbing them, Clearly, yeah. there's something more going on there. That that's not behavior that is normal behavior, and and not uh, not letting it go or not suggesting that that that. I mean, clearly that person needs some kind of treatment or need or has something else going on. How much is it that that there are there is an increase of people that are on the streets of downtown Vancouver and other places as well that are not getting anywhere near, if any, of the treatment they need. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, and you've got to distinguish this. You've always had bad behavior. That's one thing, and, and respecting people and uh, those issues. But you're right. There's also this element of mental illness that seems to have flared up. And, again, the pandemic seems to have intensified that, as well as the um, putting people all over the neighborhoods uh, without any checks or balances. So I think maybe the government, and, again, this is a provincial responsibility, have to step in and have some sort of street workers that go around focusing on mental health issues and helping those people on the street and identifying the ones that are at a risk to the general public. Right, because we're talking about really different things. If we're, say, looking at the scam that's been happening at an increased rate in Vancouver where people are going up and, and saying that a, a grandchild needs money and, and, and milking money out of, of senior citizens, I mean, that's a calculated crime that's being committed. Right. Whereas somebody going on a stabbing spree, who knows what's going on with that person and what prompted that? Yeah, we don't have a, there's not a lot of stabbing sprees, so that, that's a good thing. I mean, we've seen a lot recently, but typically there isn't. What we've seen, if we think back over the past year, was a lot of uh, violence or very aggressive shoplifting, and this is kind of as a result of it. So I think one of the things that we have to do as a society or as a city is to go back and start dealing with all these different issues. We've kind of let them manifest themselves, and they've, they've grown over time, and I think that's the key is to get back there and start pushing back and identifying all the issues and working with the police because the police can only do so much. Uh, again, the public has a responsibility in this as well. All of us do, just like we do with environmental issues. We don't leave it all to the government to deal with. All of us have to, to deal with this somehow, even in little ways. When you talk about the violent shoplifting, do you think part of the reason for that too, though, is people who are doing this know even if they get caught, there are very little, if any, repercussions? Yeah, no, that, that's an excellent point. That's that's my perspective as a retired cop, 
is that the courts have to uh, be part of this process. There has to be some meaningful consequences for bad behavior. Um, they have to be identified, and whatever that, those consequences are, but the courts have to uh, deal with that. It's not for the police, it's not for the public, it's the courts, and then the correctional system has to step in and uh, ensure that this doesn't keep reoccurring, because right now, it, it's everybody knows that not much is going to happen to you, and I think that's one of the problems here as well. There's been a call as well in some neighbourhoods for more beat officers, so officers walking on the streets, having a very visible presence. Do you think that would make a difference? Yeah, and I, and I think, and again, it comes back to the public supporting the police. So it's not just the cops, but we need more community engagement. So bike patrols, uh, civilians can volunteer their time. We, we can have car patrols where two civilians are in a car and they call the police. Not, not to get engaged with the public, but again, to be the ears and eyes and just to be out there uh, with jackets on and, you know, say, uh, safety prevention or safety uh, Something that actually shows the community that there's people out there watching, that they're willing to help if something happens. And I think that's something we need all to do, you know, more than what we are right now. All right. Rick Parent, thanks so much for taking the time with us today to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you for bringing the issue up. I think it's important that we keep talking about it. So take care. Just before the news, I played just some of the comments from BC's Chief Coroner, Lisa LaPointe. She announced earlier today that in this province, the toxic illicit drug supply has claimed the lives of at least 2,224 people in 2021. That's the preliminary data that was released by the BC's coroner, BC Coroner's Service today. Uh, she talked about the fact that during the past seven years, BC has experienced devastating loss of life because of the drug supply. And she also answered questions about what specific drugs are showing up more and being cut into other drugs. I have no doubt that the increasing numbers of people dying in our communities um, are reflected, are a reflection of the <clears throat> rapid increase of benzodiazepines in the system. Um, as I say, we've, we've gone from noting 15% in samples uh, to just a few months later, 50% in the samples that we are testing. And um, what I hear from those who are working on the front line is that um, benzodiazepines are sedatives, they're not opioids. And uh, naloxone is an antidote to an opioid poisoning. So where one or two um, um, in, um, applications of naloxone may have been effective previously, they're now having to do three or four or five, or it just isn't effective. Um, naloxone is not effective for methamphetamine or cocaine. Those are stimulants. So naloxone is good for opioids, and we know fentanyl is involved, and it will help with the impacts of fentanyl. But now that so many people, knowing and unknowing, uh, are ingesting benzodiazepines, uh, naloxone will become increasingly less effective. And there is not another antidote, so we will continue to see more and more people die. Hence the need for services for people uh, when they're where they're at and when they need them. That was BC's Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe. We are joined now by Laura Shaver, spokesperson with the BC Association of People on Opiate Ma Maintenance. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, when we hear these numbers and hear from the Chief Coroner and she talked about it in that news conference as well about a different approach, uh, what are your thoughts or what is your reaction to that? Well, first off, it's I hate the numbers. We're names. They're people. Pe pe people. They they bleed red. 
the thing is that yes, now naloxone is it's what well, it's what it's useless. We now have a drug that's that's being put in the already tainted drugs that we cannot reverse. The thing is, and the the coroner is saying that there is need for. We already know there's need for a program. What I want to know is where am I supposed? Tell me where my prescription is waiting for me, or else where is the plot that my family is going to put me in? Has there been any response as far as when we talk about safe supply? Uh, we know that there's been uh, the call or the application for decriminalization. Has anything changed as far as that and what you're seeing? Well, well if you see the numbers, 2021, there's a 26% increase in deaths. And this is with new programs implemented. It's because we still don't have all the programs that we need. So what... So so, yep. so you know what? There's there's a beginning, and you know what it is. It's us. It's us doing our symbolic actions of putting out, you know, a, a clean, illicit supply for people, because the the medications they're being prescribed are are insufficient, or they can't even get the medications prescribed to them that are there to be prescribed. And is that, how big of an issue is that that people, if you are if you are are getting that prescription or, or you have you should have access to it, like you say, not being able to actually get it? It's it's, it's huge. People that even get it, there's ninety four percent of people that are on the opiate maintenance treatment have to go to a pharmacy every single day to pick up a medication. That's a major barrier. The barriers are what are is is what's blocking a lot of people from accessing proper proper medications because of and you know being afraid of being ta- um you know um getting getting in trouble because they have a, a dirty urine screen or or some people can't even get out of bed to to turn on a light let alone go to a pharmacy to pick up something that is going to make them live that day but for most people, what this is about is a job for me and the four people plus that are dying a day. It's our lives. So how would how would we change that then? If we look at that one specific issue of, of having to go to a pharmacy every day, say even for somebody who's capable of going to a pharmacy every day, what could change specifically there that would that would make things better? So what? Well, so that there'd be better there'd, there'd be more increased door to door delivery. Just and just give them a prescription that they can that they can take away, so that they can take you know take maybe maybe they go once a week or it's delivered to them, you know at their homes where they don't have to go anywhere because there's already delivery. So make it more increased, and in that it's that the pharmacists are able to to deliver all medications because there actually there's some medications that they can't. Right. Okay. It's not consistent, right? Is the issue though that if somebody say was given a week's worth or, or more than that, that there could be potential there if somebody that somebody might not take it in the way that it's meant to be taken or might take too much? See, but, but that's their choice. The thing is, is that that that's 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 a choice that a person is allowed to make or should be able to make, and 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 with any other medication, you you have that choice. Or people have, many people do it all the time. So how come people for, quote, drug replacement or opiate replacement can't? 
why are they treated? It's treated like we're treated like we're children. When the thing is, is that it, it is our choice what we put into our bodies. And if it's there to be prescribed, then why can we not take it? And why can it not be t- taken at the way that we choose? And when they talk about worry about diversion, well, then maybe at least somebody else is getting a safe supply as well. Uh, The coroner also uh, made an interesting comparison, I thought, and she talked about the fact that we see a lot of of chronic disease, we see a lot of death that's linked to alcohol, but there's certainly not the same stigma and there's certainly not the same barriers when it comes to getting alcohol and getting treatment for alcohol. Is that something that you think that that it should be treated more that way as far as making... Oh, you know, because I don't think that's true. I think the the barrier for people who drink illicit alcohol is absolutely atrocious. And they're poor people. So the thing is, is that even even tr- accessing treatment is barbaric. Some of the treatment, it's 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 yeah. A lot of it is exactly like my coworkers say. It's a lot about poverty. All right. Well, Laura, we're going to leave it there for today. My thanks, though, for for coming on the program. Thank you so much for for joining us to respond to these numbers today. You're welcome, and please not numbers to these names. These people. Death stalks you at every turn. Grandpa? Well, it does. Ah, there, there it is. Death. It's only Maggie. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, at my age, the mind starts playing tricks. So, ah, death. That's only the cat. Oh, ah, death. That's Maggie again, Grandpa. Oh, where were we? Death! All right, that was a clip from The Simpsons and pointing a little fun at Grandpa Abe. But I wanted to play that, well, to to poke a little fun at what was a great show, but also because we are talking about some new research and it is out of UBC and it focuses on how people feel about aging, specifically saying that if people have a better attitude or feel better about how they are aging, that could lead to other improvements when it comes to health and well-being down the line. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Julia Nakamura, a graduate student in the UBC Department of Psychology and also the first author of this study. Julia, thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Can you talk a little bit more, specifically this study and looking at attitudes about aging, what were you focused on? Sure. So we looked at a sample of over 13,000 older adults, and we were interested in how aging satisfaction was associated with subsequent health and well-being outcomes. And we found that those in the highest group of aging satisfaction, as compared to the lowest group, had improved physical health outcomes, such as a reduced risk of mortality, better health behaviors, they engaged in more frequent physical activity, and improved psychosocial well-being, like a reduced risk of depression four years later. And I guess not a surprise that people, for the most part, not everybody, but people don't like aging. When you look in the mirror and maybe you see a few more wrinkles or you don't look the same as you did 20 years ago, it can be depressing for people. It can it can be a big downer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, you know, ageism is really pervasive in our media in our society and how we think about aging. And and our results show that thinking more positively about aging could have um, concrete benefits for health and well-being outcomes down the line. 
Uh, and when you looked at people again, looking at how participants in this study felt about their own aging over a four-year period, uh, did you look at, at how people felt about it as well in that we're constantly seeing people that uh, are trying to find ways to look younger? Uh, we're constantly being bombarded uh, with celebrities who look much younger than they actually are. I mean, we are kind of surrounded by a society where youth, there's so much importance is put on youth. Right. So we asked people about the beliefs that they have about their own aging, things like their quality of life, their energy, their happiness, their feelings of usefulness. Um, And we used questions such as, you know, I'm as happy now as I was when I was younger. Um, And those who who answered those questions more positive, positively and specifically saw improvements um, over a four year time span were the ones who then saw improved um, outcomes. Hmm. Uh, interesting. And were you looking specifically when you ask a question like that? Did you ask to as far as uh, why people would feel that way as far as because of, of where they are in their life or maybe their their family, where they are in their family, familial status or, or what were the kind of factors that they put into that? Right. So these were more general questions about views on aging. And we didn't really look at factors that predicted um, aging satisfaction Something important to note is that we did adjust for a variety of things that we might think could influence aging satisfaction. So things like people's uh, physical limitations, their chronic conditions, irrespective of these factors, improvements in aging satisfaction had positive benefits. Hmm. Did you look at then things also uh, like um, uh, their health routines, whether or not somebody was somebody who ran marathons or was somebody who exercised regularly or did other things in their life that are considered healthy? Right. So we, we adjusted for all of those health behaviors. So things like heavy drinking, smoking, physical activity, sleep. Um, we also adjusted for physical health outcomes. So different chronic conditions like diabetes, cancer, um, psychological things like depression, social factors like loneliness. And so these findings are above and beyond all of those different factors. Um, We saw that people who improved their aging satisfaction had improvements to health and well-being four years later. Uh, you mentioned too. So one of the statements that you recorded people's responses was the "I'm happy, as happy now as I was when I was younger." Uh, I thought it was interesting. The other ones, uh, one of them being, "Things k- keep getting worse as I get older." What kind of response did you get to that statement? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't remember off of my head the specific items, but from what I remember. A large number of people were able to maintain their answers over four years. So we didn't see you know, dramatic declines in most cases um, and occasionally even saw that people you know, viewed aging more positively between our first two waves. Um, and so I think that goes to show that aging satisfaction is, is something that can be uh, modified. It can be intervened upon. And potentially when thinking about ageism and the way that you know, the media, as you mentioned, is sort of representing aging. Um, If we can maybe modify those things, there's evidence to show that aging satisfaction can be maintained. And there's the United Nations last year released this big global report on ageism and actually showed many different projects worldwide that are being done to try to improve people's, um, you know, attitudes about aging. 
And it's even things as simple as having younger people engage in um, just more frequent contact with older adults um, and learn about their lives can actually reduce some of their negative aging stereotypes. Right. And, and you mentioned, too, and when looking at ageism and, and how, uh, how that kind of plays into or works into it, to one of the other statements so that, that people responded to was, the older I get, the more useless I feel, which I would imagine that kind of would, would go hand in hand wouldn't it, with, age, with ageism and, and how people are perceiving that. Right. I think a really common misconception is that later life is this period of, yeah, becoming useless and not contributing But we find that most older adults are really active and productive members of society and really have a desire to give back and be a contributing member. Uh, what do you, where do you think the, stu- the study goes from here or what can we kind of take away? Uh, obviously that, yes, if you have a better attitude uh, toward about aging and, and that helps with better health, but what else can we take away from these findings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so over the next 20 years, our number of older adults in Canada over the age of 65 is expected to increase by 68%. So we're going to have this massive population of older adults. And I think that, you know, we could use a societal shift in how we think about our aging population and how we think about this uh, later period of life and how this can really be a positive experience for everyone. And if we think more positively about aging as a whole, um, we might prevent some of these self-fulfilling prophecies that come from thinking about aging as a, a negative experience. Right. And that seems like a big shift, though, or, or something where it will take a bit of work to, to do that, because we do tend to associate negative things so much with getting older. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we didn't look specifically in our study at, you know, how to improve ageist attitudes and how to improve Um, individual aging satisfaction, but that's certainly an area of study that we're looking into. You know, what factors do predict higher aging satisfaction and better attitudes towards aging? Um, And so I think that that question is still out in the open. All right. Well, it's really interesting research and findings. Julia, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to take a little bit of time now to talk about the development of a vertically integrated mushroom brand. But we're not talking about just any mushrooms. We are talking about psilocybin and MDMA and the psychedelic-assisted therapies. So we've talked about this before, but the reason we're talking about it now is because this new company has just been given a dealer's license by Health Canada. And joining us to explain what that is is... Is Bill Siprick, the CEO of Optimi. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Before we get into what the dealer's license granted by Health Canada actually allows and permits, can you talk a little bit about what your company does and what your company makes? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Optimi Health, the best way I would describe us, is a health and wellness company and one that is truly focused on all things fungi. So sophisticated mushroom brands that really help promote health and wellness. And we're doing that through a couple different ways. Uh, One is through uh, what we think is going to be an innovative nutraceutical line. Uh, The other is through our research and development into uh, a lot of different elements related to, I'd say, the, the many amazing properties of fungi. And then the most recent one leading into our dealer's license 
is the ability to grow and produce uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms that can be used in a number of different uses. And are they, are, when we talk about psilocybin mushrooms and, and that for types of, of therapies or psychedelic-assisted therapy, are those already in use in Canada? In a restricted format, yes. So on January 4th, Health Canada, uh, I would say, uh, granted special access and created a special access program specifically for psychedelics, which includes psilocybin, and quite frankly, that probably will be the psychedelic used most. And it's really intended for people in a couple areas. One is if they're in palliative care and, uh, and or end of life and are looking for and suffer from, I would say, end of life depression, uh, anxiety. Uh, the other is for people that have severe depression or anxiety, uh, post-traumatic syndrome, trauma, or uh, severe anxiety, and have been resistant to conventional medicine. The idea of the special access program is allowing the clinician uh, and the physicians handling the care for that individual to apply for means, and now psychedelics are an available option, uh, psilocybin being one of them. And that would be similar to a few other jurisdictions in the world. But Canada is actually leading the way in that regard and sort of some of the openness of availability. All right. So at this point, then, when, when we're talking about that or those type of treatments, uh, is it pretty much that you'd have to get a prescription or is it difficult for people to access it? It's, it's certainly not easy. It's not as simple as the days of medicinal cannabis where you could just walk into many places and get a prescription. Uh, in this case, the physician or healthcare taker or provider has to undergo a special access authority form. Uh, it, it's not straightforward, but it takes, I don't know, probably an hour and a half of dedicated time uh, from the, the physician and the caretaker from the case history and sort of the reason why that they, they consider uh, this as a viable option. Uh, but I think importantly is before the special access program, the only access to psychedelics or other con- unconventional therapies was through a Section 56, which the approval process was very uh, long. And quite frankly, most never even were approved. Special access to turnaround time is quite short within a matter of days from submission of the application that the clinician understands that uh, he or she is able to administer the psychedelic. And then it would actually go to them and they would be the one in a controlled setting that would be able to deliver that to the patient. All right. So how do things change then? Or what do you think will change with your company uh, as far as what does it mean being granted a dealer's license by Health Canada? So the significance of the dealer's license is because psychedelics are controlled substances, you you need to have a dealer's license in order to be able to uh, grow, manufacture, distribute, uh, or do anything with them, quite frankly. Optimi has built two 10,000-square-foot facilities in Princeton, D.C. that we have dedicated and purpose-built specifically to helping us grow best-in-the-world GMP, uh, natural, pharmaceutical-grade psilocybin-containing mushrooms. So whereas we've had an aspiration, and part of the thesis of putting the, the company together was uh, to really improve human performance and, and all natural human optimization through fungi, this puts us down that very important path as being now an approved dealer in Canada and around the world to actually be able to grow and produce 
the highest quality psilocybin containing mushroom products in the world. That's a huge development or, or a facility in Princeton. How did you end up, or, or what, how was the decision made to be based and to do this in Princeton? Uh, it, it actually falls on the back of uh, uh, two of the individuals that were tied into the business early days, and that's uh, Brian and, and Jacob Safrick. And they were looking for an area to build in their family businesses a, a world-class cannabis business called BC Green. They were originally starting in Abbotsford, and it was at the time when Abbotsford stopped allowing cannabis facilities to uh, to, to grow. They, they, had, they felt they had enough in the jurisdiction and they didn't want more. It was through some research that Brian was able to get in touch with the city of Princeton, and they've been fantastic from day one. And this is going back almost six, seven years ago in terms of welcoming the opportunity for new businesses in their community. And then when Optima was founded two years ago, uh, given the amazing reception that this, the city showed, it was kind of a no-brainer to be able to say, well, this is where we want to build our facilities. And everything that I just said has been true. They've been extremely welcoming and very supportive of what we're doing. Uh, you mentioned medicinal marijuana, and, and there seems to be a bit of a parallel as far as uh, what uh, what's happening with mushrooms, with, with this, with psilocybin. Are, are you concerned that the, the way it stands now with the special access program and with kind of what people have to go through to, to get the product, will it take a while until perhaps legislation catches up to the amount or to what you're going to be offering or hope to offer to people? Yeah, it, it, it could be. I think the important steps are now, uh, like the special access was a huge leap. And I, and I say that because it's going to open up the opportunity to get experience and quite frankly, to build trust both with Health Canada, but then also to the greater community. You know, lest we forget 50 years ago, uh, psychedelics were actually being researched and used fairly mainstream for many therapeutic options. And I think they just weren't recorded that well. Uh, we've got an opportunity to rewrite what that history is going to look like. Gain the trust, as I said, of, and th- this is an incremental step. Health Canada has to get comfortable with it. And then the general community to see that there's really something here. And we, we believe in particular psilocybin that the results that the clinicians and the patients are going to see it's going to build the advocacy that I think will give that comfort level to Health Canada to say, we're now ready to do more and it'll open it up to more patients that could really benefit. And how much of a challenge do you think that will be as far as with more clinical trials taking place or more research into this and the benefits and perhaps also concerns about it? How, how much of a challenge is it to get that research done or to make sure people understand or we have a better understanding of what, what these mushrooms, what these psilocybins can do? I would say fortunately, globally right now, psilocybin is probably being researched more than uh, any other psychedelic. And with that, uh, if you think of any leap that a regulatory agency, whether it's Health Canada or in Australia, UK, uh, Israel, they want, they want to see patient experience. They want to see clinical data, but they also want to see patient experience and outcomes. And there are literally hundreds of trials that are either occurring 
or have been designed, ourselves included. We have a docent study we're doing with the University of Calgary that we'll be commissioning in a few months here. The more experience there is in that regard, the more that's being able to report back, it's just going to build that repository of data and patient experience that's going to really convince regulatory authorities that there's a different option here and there, it, it really could be game-changing to a lot of patients. We already know in different parts of the United States that some healthcare providers are already willing to accept and pay for immersive therapies with psychedelics. And that, again, it's these experiences and as they report back, that's going to build that confidence, whether it's FDA, Health Canada, for them to say, we're now comfortable to allow more. So it's going to take some time, but we're, we're in it for the long ride and feel that we really offer an advantage uh, because the piece is going to tell you everything I just described in terms of access to safe, efficacious products to the patients, but then also for clinical trials, there is virtually no supply in the world <laughs> right now. So as we start growing, literally, figuratively, and actually, uh, we expect the demand to be quite high because in particular for the quality level and at a GMP pharmaceutical grade that we're going to be producing, it just simply doesn't exist. So the, the regulatory agencies need to see and have comfort in that level of quality of product. All right. Well, it's very interesting and to, to see how far things have come with this industry. Uh, Bill, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. No, thanks for having me. Well, you've heard some stories about this in the news today. Vancouver City Council has approved a pilot project, and this is to help address homelessness. It's called the Tiny Shelter Project Pilot, the first of its kind in the city's history, and it will provide 10 tiny shelter structures for up to 20 people for a period of two years. It's going to be co-located. It will be adjacent to an existing shelter that's currently being operated by a nonprofit provider. The anticipated opening is by the fall of this year. So we wanted to get a bit more reaction and talk a bit more about this. Joining us to do that is Fiona York, tenant support worker at the Lookout Emergency Aid Society. Fiona, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, What is your response to hearing about the fact that the city of Vancouver is going to go ahead with this pilot project for tiny shelters? Well, on the face of it, it's a very creative and welcome idea. I think that it's great to have an influx of new units and uh, new creative ideas um, for um, adding to the housing um, structures. However, there are a few downsides to the proposal. Overall, though, I think that um, it recognizes that there's a need for newly built units. It kind of recognizes the fact that um, our SROs and many of our existing supportive housing and units are in a state of disrepair and unhabitability. And so kind of recognizes the need for an influx of something that's new. It's creative. It's something that's different. Um, The idea when I've spoken to people who are um, in need of housing or people who are homeless is quite a welcome one. People like the idea of having something that's uh, that's private, that's independent, where they can close the door. Um, So on on the surface of it, it, um, there's many welcome things about this idea, but there are some sort of downsides as well. And what are the downsides that you see? So um, the way that it's proposed, it's actually they're tiny shelters as opposed to tiny homes. And 
Um, it's part of the existing shelter uh, structure, and it's it's considered, it's actually proposed as emergency temporary shelter housing. Now, you did mention that they are for up to two years, which is longer than some of the current um, housing and shelters, the way that they're set up, that um, there are currently programs housing programs that only are for one year. So two years, it's a little bit more extensive. However, it's still um, uh, investment into a temporary shelter system as opposed to permanent housing. Um, And so what what really is needed, of course, is for permanent housing where there isn't that instability, that inconsistency where people can have a sense of stability and permanency and, um, you know, actually having a place that they can call home and they don't have to leave in a couple of years. So um, it's really, it's just an investment, unfortunately, in in, uh, something that's temporary as opposed to something that's permanent. And we've seen in recent years after initiatives like the temporary modular housing, um, where again, it's an investment in something that's short term, um, of course, it can be completed quickly, and it's it's you know it's great that it would be for this this fall within this year, um, but it's just uh, more funding that's going into something temporary as opposed to something permanent. Um, also, in the proposal, it's mentioned that these are <laughs> excuse me these are uh, one room shelters, so they're not um, actually housing uh, with a kitchen and a bathroom. So what's often identified by people who are in need of housing and people who are homeless is that they're really looking for something that's fully, has all the amenities, is fully independent and has a kitchen and bathroom. And I believe that is something that's actually being recognized in on many levels now, even by city council. I know there's talk about um, with refurbishing a couple of well-known SROs, the Balmoral and the Regent, there's talk about um, having them um, renovated into something where people would actually have full suites with kitchens and bathrooms because just recognizing that that's something that people are needing and identifying for themselves. And then here we are with another proposal investing more funding into something that's not only temporary, but it's also just one room that doesn't include even a bathroom, a private bathroom or a kitchen facilities, um, which seem to be sort of the trend with some of the recent uh, units that were open and hotels um, that generally had at least a bathroom attached to them. Right, and I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. In the wording of the release that came out in the proposal for this, it's saying that each structure will be one room with space for a couple or for one person to sleep and a place to store belonging, belongings. Uh, it will have power, heat, and air conditioning, but no kitchen and no washroom. Those services will be provided at the main shelter building on site. So do you think that's going to be, is that going to be something that people are going to want? I'm sure there are people who will be um, will be happy with those um, structures. And you mentioned as well that they would be suitable for couples. And um, I even just spoke to people today who are saying they're wondering if there would be space for any kind of shelter for a couple. It can be a little bit more difficult, and sometimes that is a barrier for people accessing shelters that they cannot access as a couple or they don't have a private space as a couple. Um, of course, other drawbacks to shelters can be things like pets and storage, um, with limited storage, that can be another barrier. But um, there are some advantages, again, of, of course, to having something that's independent with a, a private space, a door that closes, a place to put your things and, and to lock and to secure your, your things and to be with your partner. Um, so certainly there are advantages, but there are just those drawbacks that um, many people, and I think that if a survey was taken or there was full consultation with people who are in need of accessing um, shelter or housing, they would identify that um, they're looking for something that is more like a home that's more permanent and um, that does have those amenities.
Uh, Melissa DiGenova, who's uh, an NPA city councillor, she was uh, tweeting about this earlier, uh, about the vote. Uh, the numbers that she has put out are saying that uh, that this is going to cost, so the city will be paying per shelter space $6,250 a month. It doesn't break down how that money is being spent, but that's the number that she's put out there. That seems really expensive for a shelter space that doesn't have a kitchen, doesn't have a bathroom. I, I mean, not that this would be an option, but imagine And and if it's for 20 people, I mean, even if you split that in half and gave 40 people $3,000 a month, wouldn't that be money for housing? Wouldn't that be money better spent? I think so. And and so, again, it kind of comes back to my concern about um, the fact that this is another investment that's going down a road that it's not really the road that we want to go down when we talk about housing for people and something that's really going to be workable in the long run. It is a, a lot of funding. Um, recently, in recent years, there's been a few shelters that have opened. There's the idea of the navigation, uh, navigation centers, the shelter pods. So all of these new ideas, but it's all based around um, something that's temporary. And it is a lot of funding. And there's also recently there's trends around um, the housing that is based on rather than a tenancy, it's based on a program. It's sort of a controversial idea that seems to be more and more common. Um, so it's housing that is based Rather than being something that's uh, through the RTB or a tenancy, people actually sign a program agreement, so it only lasts for one year. And there's lots of drawbacks, of course, around that, um, and people don't have as many rights. And so, again, it just seems like a lot of funding, rather than actually setting people up for success and independency, um, it actually is just more funding that is perpetuating this the cyclical um, uh, system of people being in temporary uh, shelters rather than uh, being set up for something that's going to work for them in the long run. Uh, you mentioned modular housing as well, and even though that is another form of, of temporary housing, it, it is housing that, uh, like you said, it, it's pr- relatively fast to build, and it is housing that is self-contained with washrooms and cooking facilities. Would it not be better to focus more on that, or would that be not be more appealing? Even if it's if it's temporary, the same as this is, it still seems like more independent housing. And, and even though I know there was some controversy when it first started in the idea was put out there but it seems like it's been a success i think yeah there's definitely pros and cons as well with the temporary modular housing but as you say they are full units with kitchens and bathrooms and there are spaces there's even some family units there's spaces for couples it's a little bit more room for storage um it's a, a again it's a bit more independent as you say there are some drawbacks with the fact that they are temporary of course um sometimes that means the land that they're on is not is land that might be used in the future for something else and so those structures will have to move or um the, uh, the land will be used for something else um and also because they are built so quickly sometimes the structure themselves is not very solid so it doesn't have a lot of um insulation for example and so they're very cold in the winter, hot in the summer. So there's a few drawbacks just with the structure themselves. But as you say, they're full units. Um, there's there's a lot of positives around that. But um, and, and in fact, some of them, uh, from what I understand, may not be as temporary as we thought they may end up uh, being around for a little bit longer, um, not within that five to six year um, cap that uh, was initially thought to be with temporary modular housing. So um, something that would include the uh, the kitchen and bathroom definitely would be preferable some of the other issues that uh, around housing is just the fact that there is um they're often run by these nonprofit societies where 
there is not a lot of tenant involvement or peer involvement. So when we talked at the beginning, we talked about this, this idea as being creative and something different and new. Um, but if we're talking about creativity, something that would be even more of a creative or something new that really hasn't been tried very much before, it would be to have more resident-led buildings as well, or peer-led or peer involvement. Um, and that's something that people have identified as well as having the structurally independent units uh, actually having a way to be involved in the day-to-day operations or having uh, peer-led housing or something um, that has less of the uh, sort of outside external um, agency running, but people are actually kind of having a say in uh, how the structures run. Um, so something like that, which is not about the structure of the building so much, but it would be um, definitely something new and creative and um, that would uh, also help to support that independence that people are seeking. All right, Fiona, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. I really do uh, appreciate your time today on this. Thank you so much.